Welcome to Troublesome Terps, a podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night. It's my pleasure to be with you again. And we have three out of the four Troublesome Terps. Sarah Hickey is off enjoying new motherhood. All the best, Sarah. Enjoy time without us. Don't miss us too much. Now, it's, it, it is fantastic to introduce a man about whom it was recently said that some of his articles are great. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexander Drexel. Good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm still pondering this. I, I don't know. I haven't written a lot of articles recently, but who knows? Um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just take it <laughs> the way it is. In any case, moving right along and welcoming the other Alex on this uh, call, Alexander Gansmeyer from Munich. Good evening. How are you, Alex? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I forgot which song I was supposed to sing. That's probably a good sign. I'm not going to sing anyways. Yeah, it's probably a good sign. Probably best not to sing. But yes, uh, <laughs> here are the very young and energetic, troublesome Terps. Very youthful energy tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and without any further ado, I would like to introduce a very dear old friend of mine, also a very youthful friend of mine, Elena Daviti. Elena Daviti is a senior lecturer in translation studies with expertise in interpreting and a PhD in translation and intercultural. Wait, I'm, am I reading out this whole thing? I'm not reading out the whole thing. Elena, why don't you introduce yourself? That's much better. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me today. It's lovely to be here to see you, Alex and Jonathan and the other Alex. Thanks for joining us. Alex, yeah. let's just skip the bio. And, and why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how you two met you and Elena? Yeah, that's actually a good idea. So Elena and I have known each other for, God, like, when was that? Like eight years ago? Mm -hmm. I think <laughs> right? so. Right? Yeah. Um, so this was in Manchester, in beautiful Manchester, where Elena and I both were the co-event organizers at the Northwest Translators Network. And yeah, we just, I forgot how we were actually, how we actually became co-event organizers. How did we that both happen? were so keen on doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a very good experience, I have to say. It's it fun. really was. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Good good times, yeah. And so that happened. And then I moved back to Munich and then you moved down to Surrey, I think around the same time, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, good times. But I think what you and Jonathan have in common is the focus on research, on interpreting research at the moment, right? So I'm sure you guys must have crossed paths many times. I in think we met for the first time in person to the previous ITI conference and you were working so, so hard the entire time. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, every time I saw you, you had a laptop open and I'm like, oh, is this what I'm supposed to be doing there as a researcher? Am I letting the side down enjoying a cup of coffee? Or tea? Yeah. Were you doing that during that time? I wonder. Just having tea, um, right? Probably the knowing the knowing the ITI conference, I think when I was chatting to Elena, I, I had just... I was just about to be really, really silly on stage, which is completely unlike me. Yeah, very. Usually you'd I, lay down and sleep. I never pull stunts on stage like falling asleep. That must be another problem. Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, and it, I think the other thing that we that we both have in common is that we're both very much uh, field researchers, both very much into seeing things as they are. Um, I write a bit of theory because I've not got any cash to go in the field at the moment, but we're both really interested in real life practices, what's actually going on. Absolutely. Empirical yeah, research. Yeah. Imp yeah. That's, that, that's a nice word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds much fancier, doesn't it? <laughs> but let's let's go a, a couple of steps back, uh, basically, because I'm, I'm always interested in how our guests become who they are, what they are. So how did you how did you get into interpreting, Elena? Into interpreting uh, as a practice, because I did practice before getting into research full time. I would say uh, 
there are two elements of me that I believe led me to this, uh, although kind of subconsciously. The first uh, has probably always been this uh, fascination for spoken language. That's something that I never thought could turn into a job somehow. I could use as a skill to, uh, to make people communicate and make a difference for them. And then um, probably the second thing was my will to travel, but not travel in the sense of, you know, going to a place for a couple of days. It was really to travel and, and have the feeling of settling somewhere, of getting to know places from the inside. I was constantly looking for opportunities to do internships abroad, jobs abroad that would take me away for two, three months at the time. <laughs> and, and probably that's how I ended up in the UK for the past 10 years. And I think, uh, yeah, this idea became stronger when I started working in uh, community settings where really what you say and how you say it makes a difference for somebody and facilitates access in a way that I never thought was possible. So I think that's, that's it's kind of similar to origin stories I've heard about interpreting, which, which is lovely, I think. So I'm just wondering... Um, just describe to us a little bit the situation. So you're in the UK, you work in community interpreting. How did you make the switch or the, how did you move towards um, research, I wonder? I, was, I, I loved practicing and I really liked uh, being uh, out there in the field. Um, but then there was something that was like I was never satisfied after finishing like an assignment. I would never go home and say, okay, that's done. Maybe I review the terminology and I move on to the next. There was always that I would call now a self-reflective attitude to try to really understand what went wrong, what I could have done differently. You know, these dynamics, which then became the main topics of my research, interactional dynamics, communicative dynamics, how people co-construct meaning. And I kept thinking about it. I just didn't have the tools to explain this. I didn't have the meta language. I didn't have the meta awareness to be able to systematize, if you want, this, uh, what was happening. And I also felt very many times when my role was challenged working with uh, vulnerable kids or with patients that I didn't really know how to make decisions. I was following common sense, but I felt I need to understand this more. And that's how I, I got uh, into research. And that really gave me some of the answers that I was looking for. And I discovered that there's many more. Lots <laughs> and of new questions. Sorry, questions. Yeah, yeah lots yeah. of new questions. Kind of pull too. one string and then the whole thing just exactly. unravels. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting, Jonathan, I, I, because that's a question I had actually for you as well. Is Does it take a certain group of people? Is that a special kind of people that sort of looks at these situations and thinks, well, I need to do research to be able to answer these questions, to be able to improve whatever, to understand this better. Because I think a lot of interpreters would just be, you know, we just see the situation and say, okay, well, I'll try something else next time. And, you know, maybe that's just, just the way it is. So I'm wondering if it's, if that's a, a specific type of person that would go, oh, I need to become a researcher to find out more about this. Well, Andrew Chesterman has a saying that everyone's a theorist, it's just not everyone's a good one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and he, he points out he was talking about translators about how they make their own ways of finding solutions on the job and they start building rules on the basis of well that worked for this client and something that I've noticed about researchers is the really good researchers will, will say okay well that worked here for this group of interpreters does that generalise anywhere else is there a, a rule outside of that and I think I don't know about Elena but I, I'm sure you've come across, you know, you get these inspirational researchers who can say, here's something that worked here. Here's how it relates to something that, that happened 5,000 miles away. 
Professor Ian Mason, I think, was was a specialist at saying, look at all these things that look unrelated. Actually, here's the common thing that links them together. And that's when you know you've got a great researcher who can find patterns that interpreters would look at and go, well, one's court interpreting, one's community interpreting, one's conference interpreting. They've got nothing in common. A good researcher goes, hold on a minute. And it's the, the inspirational people who yeah. can do that that I think pull you into research. I agree. And clearly, just to, to go back, experience is key. Clearly, experience helps you develop even subconsciously sometimes, you know, some of the answers, some of the um, understanding of how to go about certain situations. So finding the patterns, finding the common grounds, uh, understanding you know, how to approach certain things from a more abstract level as well. And I love how... In your work, you, your questions seem to get more and more, in a, in a way they get more and more refined, but in a way they get more and more practical as, as you go on as well. And, and you can see it in your work. Uh, I think it was Graham Turner who said to me, that if you're doing research right, the more research you do, the more questions you should have. That seems very philosophical. <laughs> just pulling at the string things, just start pulling one thing in. So many questions open up, yeah. <laughs> I suppose for me, for me that happened with... Uh, but there's uh, like, a, like different stages in my research. So I started with uh, interactional dynamics, how people co-construct meaning, how people understand each other. And I looked at it from the lenses of multimodality. So I was looking at what people say, but also what I call embodied behavior. So how they use gaze, gesture, body posture, uh, whether they are complementary to what they're saying or sometimes in conflict. And that was applied to my own uh, experience, mostly in pedagogical settings. And then I joined Surrey and I started working on video-mediated interpreting with some pioneers like uh, Professor Sabina Brown. And I, I discovered this whole field of research where multimodality was also very relevant. How do we communicate verbally and non-verbally through a screen? where everything is bi-dimensional. So I started seeing multimodality through different applications. And uh, we started looking into how that can feed into training because I do believe in the value of research that feeds into training, into teaching, into practice. And then continuing in this journey, I started discovering this hybrid techniques, hybrid services uh, at the interface between human and machine. And I, I discovered another dimension of multimodality. So yeah, questions keep coming up. They keep coming up. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, a long answer. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm just wondering, sorry, before we uh, move ahead, is can you can you unpack the whole idea of multimodality a little bit more? I, I feel like I haven't quite grasped it, I think. Yeah, it was the idea of studying how people co-construct meaning so in an interaction where you have uh, the primary participants as we call them and the interpreter how they communicate not only through what they say which has mostly been the focus of uh, early interpreting studies but also through so how they use gesture gaze body posture proxemics uh, which is another very important dimension of meaning making during an interpreter mediated event and this was quite new when I started looking into that, uh, there were many studies that had done it. And I believe it was mostly for also practical reasons. I had to video record real life uh, interpreter mediated events. And that wasn't easy. It took me a whole year and a half just to record two hours of interaction to get all the permissions, you know. <laughs> so it is a very qualitative study, but it enabled me to, to try to understand how these two dimensions, so verbal and embodied, how they are so closely intertwined, how sometimes we say things and we convey contrasting meanings 
through embodied behavior. So th that, that was in a very simplistic way, what got me into multimodality applied to interpreting. And I think even there, I mean, I was reading some recent work from Killian Zaber in Geneva, and it seems like interpreting studies is still now trying to get a handle on this idea of multimodality. Still, the majority of studies are based on people transcribing what the interpreter said. And I know there's been some work discussing that, but it is this idea of when you're interpreting, even if you're in a booth, you're not just saying words. There's a whole sets of layers of meaning. I mean, I, I joke with people, you know, we're experts reading the back of people's heads if we're conference interpreters. But there are all these layers that build up. And this is what the multimodality thing is, is what's, how many layers are there going on? What are the relationships between them? That, it, that becomes complex very, very quickly. And yet I would imagine that most competent interpreters deal with that stuff without thinking. And it takes researchers to go, hold on a minute, how does that actually work? Yeah, that became particularly relevant when looking at remote interpreting or video mediated in general to see how we come across through the screen, for instance, how we interact with other people through the technology and with the technology at the same time, how the whole perception somehow can get distorted. Um, that just gave uh, some tools to add this layer, as Jonathan was saying, of analysis, which is enriching and can give some new perspectives uh, and some new depth to understanding interactional dynamics. So um, very complex and there's still a lot of work to do, I would say. It's a, the dimension that for me is really important. And, and you started working on this topic before the pandemic started already? Yeah. Yes. So in a way, you were quite well prepared then for this <laughs> new normal, as they call it, or this, this new uh, situation yes. we work in. Yeah. Yes, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite amusing. I mean, uh, how certain recommendations, ideas or findings uh, all of a sudden became so relevant. And it's something that, sorry, we had been talking about and discussing for years. And always with the caveat, okay, there's still reticence, there's still some fear towards these new modalities. And then Definitely. all of a sudden it becomes everyday <laughs> business. It's almost like a, a, a field trial on a global scale, isn't it? If only you could be in, in if only you could be everywhere at the same time to, uh, you know, research everything. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we um, should probably get a, away a little bit from remote interpreting. Uh, and actually, it's it's not the, the main topic that we wanted um, to to discuss tonight, because um, our thought was to to look at, you know, other interesting ways of work um, that could be relevant and of interest to interpreters. And uh, that's something that you've been uh, looking at as well, Elena, I think. And um, I, I think I, sh I should point out as well, this this topic has been on our bucket list for a long time now. We've always wanted to talk about it, even before the pandemic, but it seems uh, it's it's become much more urgent now, much more pertinent, I guess. Um, so just opening this up to, to all of us here, um, what, what could those other things be? I mean, uh, I guess uh, something that a lot of interpreters do is translate on the side, obviously, and some uh, some of us may be doing more translation work these days, of course, uh, and, and then maybe, you know, stuff like language teaching, maybe. Um, but there are other interesting fields of work out there as well, aren't there? I was going to say, I, I've heard of people being more and more attracted to voiceover work, and there seems to be a general trend towards people thinking that 
uh, Hollywood or the film industry is going to be the, the white horse that rides to save parts of the language industry. Um, I guess it's in the same way as you meet a lot of translators who would love to be literary translators. There seems to be some interpreters going, you know, I would love to be a voiceover artist or I'd love to read out audiobooks. I was like, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> But uh, in that same vein, I it's not voiceover work that I've been doing a lot more of, but I've actually been kind of recording. I've been interpreting videos, but then kind of recording the the audio, sending them a separate audio file, then listen to, listening to it again with the video to make sure that everything kind of matches. So it's sort of, it's still sort of interpreting, but it's like at home and then I'm recording into like a little recording device, which reminds me a lot of like uni again, because we used to do that at uni all the time. <laughs> I was thinking of this concept of uh, hybrid services uh, crossing the boundaries of established modalities, of established uh, practices, and of established uh, also ways of working. And uh, the one that I'm focusing on at the moment, which is emerging, is called uh, interlingual respeaking. And that's a form of um, live subtitling via speech recognition, to put it very simply. It's, uh, it's a service that crosses the boundaries of uh, established practices uh, as it combines skills from simultaneous interpreting, but also skills from subtitling. It uh, also crosses these boundaries of, um, of uh, modalities in that uh, normally in spoken language interpreting, we tend to be within the boundaries of orality, right? Spoken to spoken. Sign language interpreting already crosses this modality, uh, but uh, we, this is a interlingual speaking talks about, it's about speech to text. So going from spoken input to written output. And uh, it's also a form of human machine interaction. So it's about learning to deal with uh, speech recognition software to be able to optimize one's, uh, one's output. And, uh, and in my view, this is fascinating. I call it a simultaneous 2.0. Because it's an enhanced form of simultaneous. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's complex, but it's also doable. It is being offered, although not on a large scale yet. But talking to industry stakeholders, we know that there's interest there. And I think that interpreters will be very well placed to at least explore it. So just to, to make it very, very simple, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So interlingual means that it's, uh, it involves two languages. So we're working from one language to another, right? And re-speaking is basically another way of saying live subtitling. So can you give us a flavor of where this would be used? Is this something that will be used on, on television? Where, where would this be useful? Yeah, uh, re-speaking effectively is live subtitling via speech recognition. And that's quite important because live subtitling traditionally in the same language, so intralingually, ha can be provided through different methods. Not, not only speech recognition, but also keyboard-based methods, stenotyping, velotyping. Maybe one of the reasons why in interpreting we haven't really heard so much of it is that it's been taken up by audiovisual translation and media accessibility as a service to provide live subtitles in the same language mostly for accessibility purposes. So for deaf and hard of hearing communities, initially was used, uh, we're talking about perhaps starting around the early 2000 in, uh, for TV program broadcast, uh, weather forecast, uh, news to make them accessible intralingually, but then more and more uh, started to be used for live events as well. And that's where I start seeing the similarities with interpreting. Now, 
the interlingual dimension, which is going across languages, opens up, uh, again, new opportunities. Uh, what I like about the practice is this accessibility angle, that is the idea of making content accessible for a wider audience. So we're not only targeting specific communities or user needs, but we are potentially targeting anyone from that people with hearing loss or native speakers, non-native speakers, people that could benefit simply from a written output for better comprehension. So it is really an inclusive service. Uh, and this is why I believe it's gaining, it's gaining ground and it's gaining interest. So what clients want is some kind of live written text delivered across languages in real time. Now, the way you get there to this product, there's many yeah. different uh, ways which have been experimented at the moment. And um, I mean, I'd be happy to elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I was in, in a few of those tests and, and, and trials as well um, a few years ago. And I think what one of the things that we did, for example, was that uh, a company came to uh, Tiskic um, to to just show what, what they had. And they had this system, for example, where they use these uh, Velo-type keyboards, so a specialized uh, keyboard which where you don't type individual letters, but you type syllables effectively. So you you basically can get up to a higher speed. And that, then that would be used to have intralingual subtitles. So you'd have a, a written output of what the speaker is saying. And then you, as an interpreter, you could use that basically to then... Uh, interpret uh, so basically as a, as a as a form of relay i guess which is kind of interesting to think about um, but then of course you could you could just um, say well the interpreter could learn that technique you know maybe using a keyboard or you could use speech recognition like not like siri or stuff like that but professional professional grade speech recognition software um, so that's that's really interesting because um, the, the company that came they also said well interpreters actually have exactly the kinds of skills that we would need to do this across languages um, so yeah i think it's it's definitely definitely interesting to to test that out have, have you done any of these sort of practical hands-on tests or is it more early research at this point? What's the situation? Yes, we have uh, research surrounding interlingual respeaking is, is quite young, but we have carried out a pilot study uh, within the broader framework of uh, a bigger study called SMART, which stands for Shaping Multilingual Access Through Respeaking Technology. Now, SMART is a project that we were recently awarded by the Economic and Social Research Council UK. The project is uh, officially led by the University of Surrey, but it relies on a consortium of national and academic, um, sorry, national and uh, international stakeholders, both academic and in industry ones, that provide a really valuable conceptual input and insights into the development of uh, interlingual speaking as a practice. Now, SMART kicked off in July this year officially, but in preparation for it, we did run a pilot study to test some elements of the methodology. The study was uh, carried out on a group of 25 postgraduate students who had different backgrounds ranging from interpreting to subtitling to intralingual speaking or a combination of these different skills. And the pilot itself proved very useful in that, first of all, it showed the difficulty to categorize participants according to clear-cut professions. Most students presented a combination of clusters, as we call them, of skills in their background, which had to be accounted for. 
in the analysis. And actually, it got us thinking that this is reflective of the reality of the language profession, where different professionals might combine different skill sets in their backgrounds. And it is important to understand which skill set or which combinations can be most conducive to the development of interlingual re-speaking expertise as an inherently hybrid practice. The pilot also showed that our best performers were those with the composite skill set, so those participants that combined mostly interpreting and subtitling in their backgrounds. But as I said, the pilot didn't test all possible relevant skills. So we are aiming to open up the, uh, the possibility to take part to a much broader range of, uh, of participants with different skill sets uh, for the main study. There's uh, other studies that have uh, started to carry out empirical research on interlingual re-speaking, although this is a very still small but, but rapidly growing, I would say, body, body of research. Now, the, the gap that SMART aims to address is uh, involving language professionals as participants in the study rather than students. This is very important. This is very important for me. We are targeting language professionals from different walks of life, people with significant experience in one or more cognate disciplines to interlingually speaking, such as um, spoken, but also sign language interpreting, translation, subtitling, both live or pre-recorded. So we are open to different profiles. Of course, I'm interested in seeing how people with interpreting skills perform. As part of the study, we are developing a substantial upskilling course that will uh, be part of our experimental design. And uh, we will provide this for free, free of charge, to participants who aim to join the study. So it will be an advanced introduction to interlingual speaking offered as a continuous professional development opportunity, as well as a way to discover a new exciting practice for those professionals who might be interested in adding it uh, to the portfolio of professional services. The course will be offered online, will be self-taught, will be flexible, and uh, will offer an opportunity for participants, as I said, to discover and to get uh, substantial training in, in, uh, in this practice, and for us to collect data which will be invaluable to be able to, to further study uh, the competencies required in this, uh, in this practice, as well as the whole process. So it will also be an opportunity for those participants who decide to join us to, to take part in research and in shaping an emerging practice. I, th I think that's something that you, Jonathan, have a few thoughts about, right? It's using interpreting students for studies. It's called convenience sampling, and it's perfectly understandable in a lot of cases. Yeah. What, I've, what I find really interesting is when we are mapping out research and interpreting, we tend to go for, can we understand the process? Can we understand the profile? What would be really interesting for me would be to say, okay, let's take a group of professionals and let's get users to tell us what kind of thing they, they want the most. Because, for example, um, I know interpreters trained before a certain point were trained in this paradigm of say everything say it how it was said, don't add or omit. Well, if you're doing interlingual re-speaking and that's going to subtitling, that's not going to work. Whereas I imagine students trained later 
I hesitate to say a date because someone will contradict me. But you know, students <laughs> trained more recently are more probably recently, yeah. are probably trained more in kind of okay. There are times when uh, condensing what was said is exactly the right thing to do. There are times when you have to think, well, they don't need that detail. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of the this idea, this uh, service of audio description, where you know the audio describer is never going to say everything that's on the screen. They have to describe the things that you need to know to be able to understand what's going on. Is it is it this similar profile that they're looking for people who can say, well, the sports commentators t- talking 120 words per minute. What you really need is this bit that we can get on screen. We're talking about a form of simultaneous interpreting and. Uh, in order to handle it, we know that strategic reformulation is important. I mean, it's not always possible to go word for word. You condense, you reformulate, and that's part of the language transfer bit. So there are moments that you need to condense, moments that you even... I mean, all the, all the theory and strategies in interpreting comes, uh, comes very handy. And, and this is part of, uh, of interlingual speaking. It, it's exactly the same process in, in somehow, uh, with the difference that... Uh, in interlingual speaking, you also need to handle your decalage perhaps even more skillfully because you are not only translating or rendering what is being said, you also have to verbalize punctuation because you are producing something that is going to be displayed on a screen, either as subtitles or as scrolling text. It takes up more words to do interlingual speaking because you also have to verbalize punctuation. And so I believe condensation is a very, very useful skill to have there in order to cope and for your decalage to become not too long because in interlingual speaking, you, you see how the output are subtitles, so they need to be synchronized with the, with the, with the source. Mm-hmm. This is really funny. I actually remembered I had one of... I basically have done this where I was the machine. So... I had a job, this was relatively at the beginning of COVID, where a client needed us to basically provide subtitles for a 45-minute workshop. And um, what we did, so this is, so the workshop was in English and we were supposed to provide the subtitles in German. For whatever reason, they didn't want us to actually, they, they didn't want us they didn't want our voice to be heard to the German audience for whatever reason, but they wanted the, the subtitles. So my colleague was doing the interpretation severely condensed while I was typing like a madman and just like sending it into into the chat for the audience. And it's exactly what, what you were saying. I had to, she didn't voice out the the punctuation, but I kind of listened with one ear to the to the original speaker just to hear like, was she yelling? Was she, what was she doing? You know, do I need like a period or dot, dot, dot or an exclamation point? And that's really interesting. That was basically that, where we kind of just like split it, where I was like the machine. <laughs> and and that's, was... I mean, it's very interesting what you're saying, because when I talk about interlingual speaking, I talk about this workflow where you have one person doing everything, all the cognitive processing, all yeah. the language transfer, adding oral punctuation, as well as editing on the go. And that is why I call it simultaneous 2.0. You have to do additional uh, things like, for instance, editing on the spot. And editing is not the same as self-repairing when you are interpreting simultaneously. It's really about, for instance, using the keyboard to correct your mistakes while you are doing all the rest. But it requires very advanced psychomotor skills as well. Uh, so it's an additional layer if you want. Yeah. Because Which, usually there's another person who does the editing, exactly. right? Exactly. There's, there's other workflows where in, in some countries where this is offered, there's two or even three people working together. 
exactly splitting roles as Alex was saying. So you have the person that does the simultaneous bit and then the editor and potentially a corrector. You can get to teams of even three to four people. The upside is that accuracy is really, really good. The downside is that the delay, the latency is too much at times. So you may have Mm -hmm. several seconds of delay. It depends on what is prioritized by the specific context, the specific client. And interestingly, another workflow that we are seeing at the moment being used when interlingual speakers, professional that can do this are not available for certain language pairs or is a workflow where you have a simultaneous interpreter providing the service in the normal way and an intralingual speaker sort of taking the floor from the interpreter and interpreting the interpreter's output intralingually. So it's this Mm -hmm. kind of team where they couple interpreters to have the language transfer bit and intralingual speakers to then turn that into subtitles. Talking to industry stakeholders, we have quite global players on the project, the, the Broadcaster Sky, access service providers like AI Media, Deluxe and SubT, and they all describe the need for a service, which is this written output in real time and interlingually, and the need very often to try out different workflows, sometimes creative solutions, because at the <laughs> moment, there isn't really a large supply of professionals that mm. can do this. And, uh, and there's a huge opportunity, I think, for interpreters and other language professionals to, to at least explore the practice. It's yeah. about getting involved in shaping a practice, ultimately, which I think is really... Just like in remote. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Exactly. And, exactly. and just to give you another uh, data point there, the, the tests that I were involved in, um, that I was involved in with these, uh, with this technology provider, they were actually also using a solution where they would have um, intralingual respeaking. So they would they would provide a text feed and then just run that text feed through Google Translate. So people could join in in any language they like that is available on Google Translate. So, you know, uh, people people are trying trying out those, you know, they're trying those things out. And uh, I, I guess that's one more reason for us to, to get involved, uh, I guess, and, and um, give our input. It is. And, and one of the aims of the project now is mapping out all the options and possibilities that are being tested. And we are testing in a more kind of side pilot study exactly the workflow that you were looking at. So where you have an intralingual speaker and machine translation together. And the question there is how can we shape human input in order to provide to machine translation something that is well punctuated, well segmented, something that ASR, automatic speech recognition, wouldn't be able to provide simply because there would be so many misrecognitions. Punctuation, we know in ASR at the moment is all over the place. Oh, yes. And again, Mm -hmm. you might uh, segmentation. I mean, there's all sorts of, of problems. I look at all these possibilities, some of which we've outlined, but there's many more on a kind of a continuum from more human-centered practices where the, where the human is at the center and kind of dealing with the whole process or leading the whole process, and this is in mm. where we're speaking, to more automated ones. Like uh, the possibility at some point, maybe in the future, to have ASR, automatic speech recognition, and machine translation together which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. But I think the real question is not to say oh, that will never happen, but to say what could the role and the place of the human be in these different workflows? At what point, at what stage, with what kind of activity 
like a kind of post-editing role perhaps, in certain situations it could work. Whereas in other contexts, with speakers being all over the place, completely unplanned, lots of hesitations, then you need maybe a more human-centered workflow. I really think it's about trying this out in different contexts and understanding the fit-for-purposeness depending on, on different requirements and different variables. That's a really encouraging way to do research because it's, it's often been, researchers have often tried to say, well, what is the best solution? And I think we're finding that the reality is, is there is no one best solution for every situation. When we had um, someone who was in machine interpreting on the show a few episodes ago, he was talking about use cases. And it seems to be exactly what you're talking about, is there are, there's a variety of use cases. You know, what is needed if someone wants to watch Home and Away in German is entirely different than if they're wanting to watch Scotland and France play rugby. You know, people might want to watch Home and Away in German for some bizarre reason, you know, but, but those two those two use cases are very different because, you know, the only thing predictable about Scotland playing sports is they will lose at least once a year, whereas home and away is very predictable because you have the script there. Absolutely. I think that's the key word, use cases, trying out by what, what I call variables effectively are then translated into different use cases. So uh, we look at, um, for instance, handling speed, how to cope with a fast speaker Maybe a machine could could be of some support there because machines don't tire. Where could the human be placed in that in that sense? But then, when it comes to other situations where you have uh, uh, multi-party interaction, so multiple speakers talking over each other, overlapping, and for instance, a use case that we are looking at at the moment is that of cinema festivals. We have Subti, that is a big provider of uh, accessibility for cinema festival, but like the Venice Cinema Festival. And they would like to make this content, uh, you know, press conferences, award ceremonies available uh, interlingually and in real time. And so we are looking at that as a very interesting scenario where you can have different kind of use cases. So um, dialogic uh, interaction, press conferences or monologic speech in award ceremonies uh, and try to see where could interlingual speaking be used, how, uh, in what kind of also combination, so team, how many people, how long uh, can you work in this mode before you stop making sense <laughs> I mean, effectively. Mm-hmm. I see the value of this kind of research to feed into working practices, into professionalization, training, uh, that to me is really at the core of what we are doing. So I think that's a really interesting question because you were saying that you have to do research before you, you know, in order to, to, to shape this kind of emerging field of practice. But as you were also saying, there is a there is a demand out in the market. So if somebody were to get started, you know, in doing this or in exploring this, like what would be a good starting point? Because I mean, obviously the research is still ongoing and you don't want to just willy-nilly go out there and, and kind of, you know, go wild, go crazy. So if anybody listening wants to get started in this or wants to start exploring this, um, you know, maybe with some training or kind of laying the groundwork, what, what do you think would be a good starting point to get involved? One of the good places to start would be to join our project. In SMART, we are developing a, an upskilling course, which is going to, to be launched in February or March next year. 
It's going to be free of charge for language professionals who want to join. It's going to run entirely online uh, in a self-taught manner, but it will provide the opportunity to get a sufficient amount of training to be able to try out interlingually speaking. So the course that we are planning now is uh, going to be around 24 hours. It will require a commitment of around three hours a week for five weeks. It's going to be free of charge and it's going to be a way of really taking participants skill by skill onto interlingually speaking. So building the skills that are necessary, starting from listening and speaking, listening and, and translating and adding punctuation, correcting, and also all the skills that have to do with dealing with the speech recognition technology. It's really step-by-step, step, very layered, progressive approach. At this stage, participating in, in this course will give professionals a very good idea of what the practice is about and some training both in intra and interlingually speaking with the possibility to have an assessment and to receive some feedback. So I would say that's a good place to start also to see if it's something for you. And then clearly from our point of view, it provides the data to understand uh, in the skills acquisition process, where are the main challenges? What are the stumbling blocks in this process? Do they have more to do with uh, handling the technology? At what stage? What happens? And then also studying uh, the performance. As I said, we're going to train using use cases from, uh, from the industry. So that, I think that I see that as a good place to start. So you said this is for language professionals, right? So this goes for translators, for uh, interpreters, because you also said that you're going to be tra training the the speaking and listening part, the um, speaking and listening and translating part. So I, I'm guessing this is, if you're already a conference interpreter, this would probably be uh, relatively easy to pick up in that part of the, of the program. And this is more for the other language professionals. Exactly. At this stage, um, it's kind of a better version, if you want, of the final upskilling, which is going to be the, the final deliverable of the project. So the idea is that the final deliverable will be uh, also modular in the sense that if you are, as you're saying, a, an interpreter and you already know how to do shadowing, listening and speaking the same language and interlingually, then maybe you can skip that part of the course and just move on to uh, what I believe is going to be interesting for interpreters, that is listening and translating, so effectively simultaneous by using what we call software adaptive delivery. We call it SAD <laughs> in our own project. Uh, <laughs> I think SMART was a better acronym, to be honest. That is too funny. <laughs> Sorry, the SAD delivery. Again, some inner uh -oh. jokes I shouldn't perhaps reveal, but it's quite funny. Intonation and prosody for interpreters are important tools to convey meaning. When it comes to interlingually speaking, you need to learn to manage that because your first interlocutor is not the audience is the speech recognition software. Mm -hmm. So in order to optimize recognition, you need to articulate really well, manage pauses and chunking, and also manage your, your prosody in general. So that's, that's perhaps going to be something that interpreters may need to focus more on. It's about unlearning something and learning to do, to do listening and speaking in a slightly different way. Possible, but different from what has been the practice so far. And, and yeah, as you're saying, it's inclusive. It's a hybrid practice, right? It brings together skills from different disciplines. Clearly, I am very interested in seeing, being an interpreter myself, how professional interpreters cope. But also professional interpreters may have other skills. They might be doing subtitling, so they might already have some 
skills that are relevant to interlingual speaking as part of their background. And then we want to open up the training also to subtitlers um, that perhaps have more in their practice this uh, constant shift from spoken to written output. We want to open it up to people who are doing at the moment intralingual speaking. And so these are the people that would need to add a language transfer component to, 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 the, to the practice. We want to test different profiles and see how they cope, but ultimately not to say our interpreters are better than subtitles. The purpose is to see what skills can better support performance. And we will be doing this through collaboration with uh, partners in cognitive psychology and neuroscience. So we will collect and correlate different uh, measures and we will be able to explore links between cognitive abilities and task-based skills, whether and how these change via training and ultimately uh, we hope to gain evidence of what factors seem to best contribute to the development of interlingual re-speaking so that we can further refine and optimize the upskilling process for language professionals. I was going to say I guess this is one place where accent would be an issue. There, there's been a running story throughout my career of people saying, you know, have you ever thought of um, changing, they, they say removing, but there's no such thing as removing an accent, that's bad linguistics, um, you know, changing your accent. And this is one of those cases where, like it or not, the automated speech recognition has been trained on uh, certain parts of the USA and RP. And that's basically what a what ASR has been trained on. So this then, I guess, is another accessibility question as to what extent will interlingual re-speaking um, require people to have to speak in the way that ASR has been trained on. I refuse to say, you know, be accent free because that doesn't exist. But, you know, if ASR has been trained that this is the language it recognises, then that actually privileges those who already speak in that way. Well, that's a very good question, actually. And uh, for, for the moment, for instance, for the project, we are using a speaker-dependent type of speech recognition. So I don't know if you're familiar. There's ASR in the sense of automatic speech recognition, like Google, uh, the one that Google provides, Google Speech, that are completely speaker-independent. So they are trained to be recognized any speakers, to even you know, recognize the language and then transcribe what any speaker uh, is saying. Speaker-dependent systems like Dragon, naturally speaking, which is the one that we are using and it's industry standard for re-speaking even intralingually, uh, ne necessitates the creation of a voice profile. So you need to train the software, uh, although now the version that they have requires uh, very short training. It used to have to be much longer by reading texts and talking to the system so that it, it starts to pick up on your accent, on, on your prosody, on your intonation and maximize recognition. And recognition is really, really good with this kind of system. The downside is that it's not offered for every language. So it has some English, uh, Italian, French and Spanish, which are the languages we are testing in the project, German, and a few more perhaps. But when it comes to languages of lesser diffusion or less resource languages, there's uh, no such system in place that delivers such good results. And again, there's a lot of research going on. I have a PhD student of mine who is working with uh, Croatian, trying to, to optimize ASR systems for Croatian, 
for the purpose of subtitling. Uh, we have, um, I think it's called Newton, which is again another ASR system for Polish. So there's experimentation, but I believe um, that that's a very topical question because some languages will We'll have to wait for the technology to catch up uh, in order to be able to provide the same level of recognition that, that Dragon uh, guarantees. So I have a I have a very practical question because I, a friend of mine was doing intralingual a friend of Alex and mine was actually doing intralingual respeaking for subtitles on German television, and she was working with Dragon as well, I believe. And um, another friend of mine was actually doing that here in Munich, even. And they were telling me that you know they had to train their Dragon and all that, and they usually always got the. Um, sort of the, the main topics of what they were doing, whether it was like a soccer game or whatever. And then they researched the names of the soccer players, of the stadium, of the city or whatever, and trained the program because obviously, especially names and, you know, product names, peoples or whatever it may be, is very, it's very difficult. So is that something that you're going to be, yes. I'm guessing that's also going to be in the course because you have to tell the people, listen, we're going to be talking about car engines and it's going to be about a very specific brand so you have to input that into your software absolutely that's a way of optimizing asr as we say for specific situations or specific hmm. context i mean if you think about it dragon itself wasn't created for for respeaking purposes it's uh, i think one of the first fields of application was in healthcare for dictating uh, um, healthcare reports rather than... And legal, yeah. And legal as well. So it is about optimizing that kind of tool for interlingual speaking purposes. So one part of the, of, the, of the training that we provide is exactly about preparing the software at best by inputting word lists. So it becomes part of the preparation that you would do for any assignment, right? Yeah. And you also prepare your, uh, your software with proper nouns or anything that would be misrecognized and we know what ASR has troubles with and then feeding that into the machine using macros as well. So there's all sorts of tricks that can be implemented to A, facilitate your life uh, and, um, and maximize uh, recognition. But again, that's part of the preparation. It's, it's part of the interaction with the software, how to use it at best. And that's such a big part of the final accuracy, right? This is very cool. I have to say, very, very cool. Cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, what I like so much about it, about this is also how initially this was, quote unquote, just something uh, that was done for accessibility, you know, for a supposedly small group of people that kind of needed this uh, and, and people would kind of yeah, roll their eyes almost at having to do this. And now it's sort of branching out into into being used by, you know, many more people. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to a situation where you would build, build a RAM for people in wheelchairs, but then it turns out this is also very useful for pe uh, people um, pushing a pushchair, you know, or a pram. So, um, and I think it's it's somewhat similar, this, this situation. So very, very exciting uh, to watch, I think. Um, and do you see any any other sort of related fields where that are sort of propping up as potentially interesting for interpreters to work in? Or is this kind of the, the next big thing this um, re-speaking? Well, I'm focusing on this one. Clearly, there's, there's more hybrid, uh, hybrid possibilities. But for me, this is already not just one service. If you, if you look at it, it uh, uh, mm. can be provided interlingually and intralingually, which again, is already two separate services. Potentially, I'm thinking about also uh, interpreters wanting to diversify, wanting to explore other 
settings as a, other scenarios where maybe simultaneous interpreting is not always um, provided. Uh, I mean, I give you an example, which for me was quite uh, interesting. The whole field of uh, uh, online digital radios, that's, that's one that we are exploring. And it would be fantastic to provide interlingually speaking or intralingually speaking to make this content accessible to a wider audience. And, and again, it's something that perhaps you wouldn't have thought about as a, as a simultaneous interpreter. Books, webinars, I mean, there's a whole, um, I believe, new range of opportunities that, uh, that open up. I mean, we live in the, they call it the multilingual um, boom uh, era, right? There's so much content being, uh, being produced multilingually and uh, multi multimedia content. And, uh, and I also really much like this social dimension to it. I also want to say, though, that I don't see interlingually speaking as um, substituting simultaneous interpreting. Because mm -hmm. I, I think that could be easily, easily, you know, misinterpreted, this idea that you, oh, you have interlingually speaking, therefore simultaneous interpreting is not necessary anymore. Well, no, I think it depends very much on the situation, on the needs. In an ideal world, I see these two services together to provide accessibility for all. There might be other, other elements there related to having to pay more than one professional, but those have to do with our concerns of the industry, from the industry. But the, the one doesn't exclude the other. What, what I think is very important at this stage, because this is so emergent and this is so new, what I hear is that there is a lot of hidden demand. So people need a certain service, but they do not know how to have it. And therefore, I think it's, uh, it's our duty uh, also to, to raise awareness of the existence of this service, the possibility to, to provide this enhanced accessibility, to target more than one user group. It, it really does make me think about the, the work that's going on studying organisations that have interpreting and the, this will in the research community to figure out you know, what is going on in the world and what services can be provided. And I, I think that it's really helpful to think of it in terms of you know, different use cases and actually you know, growth in interlingual re-speaking might lead to growth in interpreting. And you know, there are so many different kinds of content going out nowadays that saying the answer is simultaneous interpreting is just silly. Um, th there's so much that can be done. And I think what one place that would be good to kind of begin to wrap this up is if you were, you know, sitting in a room full of interpreters who are a little bit worried, a little bit concerned, what is one thing that you would like today's interpreters to know about these kind of new ways of speaking that we've talked about? I would say, uh, as I said, actually, I think at the ITI conference uh, last year, not to be scared of these new ways of working, not to be threatened or to feel threatened by hybrid services or to feel like rejecting them because they have a technology aspect or they seem complex or difficult. I mean, one thing that research has established now is that it is feasible the question to explore is to what extent it is feasible, how can we best uh, support professionals doing this practice, how can we explore the process. So, but it is feasible. As a matter of fact, it is offered in countries like Belgium, like the US. I spoke to interlingual re-speakers that do this on television for live events. So it is possible. And I would say 
look at this as an opportunity, as an opportunity for diversification, as an opportunity to not only offer a new service, but get involved in the debate that is ongoing, shaping a practice. And I think that, you know, because it's so emergent, it's really a good time to then start the discussion with academia, but also with industry stakeholders. And all of this, I believe, will have good, uh, good repercussions on working conditions, on, uh, on uh, status, uh, on, on the visibility also of the professional. And as a last point, I would also say on this broader debate about human-machine interaction and automation. I told you earlier, there's a lot of experimentation of different, uh, different workflows. Uh, but I think starting from the most human-centered that you can see, seeing you know, the opportunities and the challenges where it copes well and where it fails, really provides good, a good starting point, a good benchmark to then feed into the debate of what is responsible automation of these workflows. How can we find the best place for humans in this different constellation of, uh, of workflows? And I think, uh, yeah, get involved in two words <laughs> would be the message. Thank you.